doing our praise team. Amen. We're, we're blessed by Clint, Nicole, Taylor, Jesse. Thank you all so much for leading us in worship through song. Take your Bible and turn to John 3.16. John 3.16, as my brother mentioned, we're continuing our series looking at this one verse of Scripture and diving down deeply into it. And I'm willing to bet that this morning will be probably one of the deepest dives we take because we are going to dive deeply into the Trinity and examine this phrase that John uses, the only begotten Son. And this morning we want to examine that phrase to really understand the gift that is given to us. When you think about presence at this time of year, there's really two things that can come to mind. Number one, some of us have it, and well, some of us don't. What am I talking about? The ability to give good gifts. <laughs> some of us give gifts that are perfect almost every single time. I mean, there, there's more or less, we hit or miss sometimes, but some of you are so good at giving gifts. It's the perfect gift. It's exactly what a person needs. It's it's a gift that, that is not too cheap, but not too expensive. It hits that sweet spot, and it's something that maybe they said they needed back in January of the, of the year, and, and you've been holding on to that, and you knew they needed it, and you give it to them, and there's, oh, you're great at giving gifts. And then there's others of you. You're the type of person that, well, you... you You'll buy someone a saddle, even though they've never ridden a horse. <laughs> have never been within a mile of a horse. For those of you that are like that, I, we do say you get a gold star for effort, okay? It's the thought. That's where the phrase, it's the thought that counts, originated. Somebody got a saddle for Christmas, and they had to do something. Some of you who have gotten those gifts, you've perfected the, uh, the way to say, oh, it's nice, but not in a way that gives off the fact that you're, you're thinking secretly, like, what am I going to do with this? How, can I get, how much can I get for this on eBay? But when we think about gifts, that's one tendency I think about. Another thing this time of year I think about is how many of you remember when you were kids and maybe you still do this as an adult, but you see a package under the tree and you're trying to figure out exactly what it is. So say so you would maybe as a kid, you would sneak under the tree when nobody was around and you pick it up. And what would you do? You kind of hold it, see how heavy it was. Does this weigh how much a PlayStation would weigh? I'm not really sure. Don't ask me why I know that. Uh, does this, does it, you shake it, right? Does it sound like what I asked for Christmas? Maybe you would even try to, you know, try to find that weak spot in the wrapping paper and the tape and see, can I open this without it being ripped, right? When we think about examining gifts, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to look at the gift that is given to us in Christ, and we want to, to take it in our hands. We want to weigh it. We want to examine it and see what it is that God really has given us in Christ. And so last week, you remember we looked at it and we said God is a loving God who gives lovingly. 
Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave. And he loved the world so much that he gave. He gave the world a gift. Now, if we have to classify God in one of those two categories, good gift giver or bad gift giver, we must say without hesitation, God is a good giver. Not only that, God is not a stingy giver. You ever get a gift that you're pretty sure somebody just gave that to you to get it out of their house? It's concerning how many of you laughed at that. But we've all been there, right? God is not like that. He's no stingy giver. He's not a bad giver. And this morning we want to look at, it, at what it is that God has given us in Christ and examine why this gift is so wonderful. So look at John 3.16. It says, For God loved the world in this way, or for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So God loved the world in this way. God loved the world so much that he gave. And what did he give? John says he gave his only begotten son so this is what we want to do we want to look at this phrase this morning and as we look at this phrase i think you'll see two characteristics of this gift two characteristics of jesus and as we do my hope is that you'll understand the magnitude and the measure of god's love for us when you see the quality the nature of this gift that is given to you that god gave us his son You'll see one truth this morning, one main idea I hope you'll take away this morning. It's this. God gave us the greatest gift when he gave us his son. The main idea this morning is God gave us the greatest gift when he gave us his son. And we see this in the two characteristics that we're going to examine this morning. And it comes out of this only begotten son, this phrase. So the first characteristic I want you to see this morning, really this, the point is the same for each characteristic, just the emphasis is different. Okay, So understand this, the first characteristic is Jesus is the only begotten son. In other words, he's distinct. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And so what we're doing this morning is we're really taking up this word in the Greek that John uses for only begotten Son. The word is monogenes, and that's important because you may hear that somewhere out if you're reading or you're on a website or somebody's discussing it. But to understand what John is doing with this word, it's important that we know this word and what John does with it, because John has already used this word twice in his gospel before we even get to John 3.16. In John 1.14, listen to what he says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's that word again, where you see only begotten. A few verses later in John 1.18, John uses the word again. He says, no one has ever seen God the only begotten Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. So John uses this word in, in those two verses. He uses it in John 3.16. And then he uses it just a few verses later in verse 18. 
where Jesus says, anyone who believes in him, that is the son, is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So John uses it four times, and then he actually uses it again, just to be thorough, in 1 John 4, 9, where he says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, your translation might, in John 3, 16, and all these other verses may say, unique, and, or one and only. And that's not a bad translation, it's just not a full translation, I might say. Uh, really, the, the translation in the Bible, in your Bible, if it says unique or one and only, it, it's kind of reflecting an interpretive choice. But this is one of those cases where I think uh, the King James and, and maybe the older words are more useful because John is not just saying that he is distinct, although he is. He's not just saying that he's unique, although he is. He's saying he's the only begotten, and we'll look at that word in just a minute. But it is for our purposes right now to say he is unique. He is the only begotten son. God, the father, has one son. Now, I'm not saying that I don't believe in our adoption as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters in Christ, but that is a, a we are children by adoption. God, the father, has only one son. Jesus is distinct in that he alone is the Son of God. Now, what does this distinctness or uniqueness mean? What are we to do with that? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus is the only Savior. Because he's the only Savior, we must believe in him for salvation. If Jesus is the only Son, then believing in Jesus is the only way to be saved. Remember the context. John is saying, he's talking about salvation, that, that God sent the Son to accomplish our redemption. In verse 18, he says that we are to believe in him, and we're condemned if we don't believe, because we are to believe in the name of the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And you remember Acts 4.12, right? There is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is salvation in no one else. And so, because Jesus is the distinct, unique, only way of salvation, we must believe in him. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've thought good things about Jesus. Maybe you, you thought that you haven't been really antagonistic toward Jesus, you see how Jesus might be helpful to other people, but you yourself have never believed. You've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never rested in what he did, that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and rose from the dead. Why not today? There is no other way. He is the unique, distinct Son of God. But secondly, this uniqueness and this distinctness means that Jesus is the very best that God could give. And because that's true, we ought to thank God for his marvelous kindness. Think about it. When you see those TV shows where something's being appraised or somebody's trying to bring something to auction, whether it's a car sale or it's something like a, 
somebody trying to sell something at a pawn shop, is it not almost inherently true that the more rare, the more distinct, the more special something is, the more valuable it is? Right? If you have a car or a piece of art or a sculpture, something that is one of only a few in the world, you go and you take it, and the guy says, you know, there's only three in the world, and this is the one that's missing. It's worth, you know, $8.7 million, right? What does it say then? <laughs> it's okay. What does it say then about God's gracious gift of himself in sending his only begotten son? Understand this. There is nothing greater that God could have given. He gave the most precious, the most valuable, the most wonderful gift he could possibly give. There's nothing else. Think about that. I don't know how you do it at your house, but do you, when, when our kids are opening their presents, you know what we do? We save the big gift for last, right? And we all know why, right? Because if you give the big gift first, then everything else after that is kind of like, I mean, if, if you give your kid a go-kart and they open that or, or you give them that first, they don't care that socks are there, <laughs> right? So you make them go through the socks first. But that's not what God does. He gives us the big gift, the best gift in sending Jesus. God so loved the world. God so loved those who were opposed to him, who had rebelled against him, who were his enemies. He so loved them that he gave them his absolute best. And that includes you and that includes me. Think about this. He owed us nothing and gave us everything. So that's characteristic number one. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He's distinct. He's exclusive. But let's look at the second characteristic. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. So if he's distinct because he's the only begotten Son of God, what does it mean that he's the only begotten Son of God? It means he is divine. Jesus is not just special because he's unique. He's special because he's God. Jesus is the one and only son. And he's not just gloriously unique, although he is, but John is also making a claim about who Jesus is. It's not just that he's distinct and unique because he's the only one. John's saying something about the nature of Jesus. Jesus is the begotten Son of God. So what we're talking about in, in theological terms that you'll find in, in, in theology books is this idea, uh, it's called eternal generation. Now stick with me, okay, because we're, this is where we're about to plunge deep, okay? Eternal generation. What does the eternal generation of the Son mean? Now answering that question could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but let me try to help you understand, okay? Augustine puts it this way. He says, The Father bestows being on the Son without any beginning in time. 
That's what eternal generation means. The Father bestows being. And if it helps, think of it as be hyphen ing. Being on the Son without any beginning in time. Jesus, in other words, is eternally from the Father, which is why he's called the Son. In eternal generation, the Father, from all eternity, communicates his name, his perfections, and his glory to the Son. From all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple undivided divine essence to the Son. So to use the language of John, the Son is eternally begotten from the Father's essence. And the term essence is helpful because we're talking about God's God's isness, his being, his divine existence. Thomas Aquinas puts it this way, whatever God has in himself is his essence, but all things the Father has are the Son's. The essence and nature then of the Father and Son is the very same. The Father has given and will give to the Son and the Spirit, all that is His, so that whatever reality explains or defines the Father's divinity explains the Son's and the Spirit's too. Everything that makes the Father God, the Holy Spirit and the Son also have. And that's why He is eternally begotten from the Father. So think of it this way. This eternal generation, the Father's It is the Father's eternal, intimate, personal causing of the Son without change, without division, without imperfection. God the Father has always been begetting the Son. And so to be clear, this is when Jesus says that, or when John says the, the, the only begotten son, when Jesus says only begotten son, he's not talking about the incarnation, that, that God became, that Jesus became the son. We're talking about this divine essence being given to Christ from the Father from all eternity in such a way that the language that best communicates it is that God is Father and Christ is Son. The Father begets, causes, essences the Son. So, there was never a time when the Son was not God, nor was there ever a time when the Son was not from the Father. And you say, why does that matter? Well, it matters because that means that, for example, the Jesus of Mormons, the Jesus of Jehovah's Witness, is not the Jesus of the Bible. Let me just put it very clearly. Mormons are not Christians and are not going to heaven if they believe what the Mormon church teaches about Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. So, to to kind of zoom out, this idea of begotten, what makes God God? 
is eternally communicated to the Son, such that the Son shares in all that makes God, God. That's why we're able to talk about three persons, but one God. They are distinct in their persons, but they are united in their divinity. And that, that, that divinity, that godness, that being, that essence, the Father gives to the Son in eternity past and in eternity future. Now, this doctrine is, is, is affirmed by the early church, and I want to uh, listen to the, the Nicene Creed. This is an ecumenical creed, about 325 A.D., and it outlines the essentials of the Christian faith. But listen to how they, it gives a good picture. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God. Think about that, light of light. What is, when, when you see the light shining into the window, where do you separate this part of light from that part of light? You don't. Because it's the same light, right? So in the, in the fourth century, they're saying Jesus Christ is light of light, very God of very God, or truly God of truly God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So Jesus is one in essence with the Father. He is a co-eternal he is the exact image of the Father. He is the Son of God, not only from the time he assumed our human nature, but from all eternity. All right, take a deep breath. Come back up to the surface. I, I, I want to, to belabor the point because I hope that you'll understand some very important theological truths about the Trinity and about our Savior. First of all, Jesus is the Son of God. A, a longer way of saying that is Jesus has eternally been, is right now, and will eternally be the Son of God. There will never and has never been a time when he was not the Son of God. So anything that you hear that says that Jesus became the Son of God when he was born or that he was adopted by God, that is heresy, and it's damnable heresy. But another side to this is true about the Father, that God has always been Father. Understand this, you realize that Father is, is so... I don't, I don't even know the right word. Before God was even creator... He, he is father. He would have been father had he not created anything. Sometimes we think that his fundamental nature is something else, but his fundamental nature is father. God the father is father. Christ the son is son. So not only is Jesus the son of God, we, we need to have that down, but Jesus is God. He is not a God. He is not a creation of God. He is the only begotten. He is divine. He is God. And so I hope by, by making this, doing this deep dive that you see the gravity and the glory of the gift that is given. What, what was our main idea this morning? Do you remember? It was God gave us the greatest gift when he gave us his son. 
God gave us the distinct, unique, divine Son of God, whom the Father has eternally caused to be out of himself, God gave his beloved Son and sent him into the world. So that's, that's amazing in and of itself, right? But, but this, is not like a, this is not like he sent his son into the world so that we just say, oh, that's, that exists, that's that. But he sent this son in the world to do what? To save sinners. To save us. So what are we to do with this as we think about this, this gift, this greatest gift that's been given to us. I want to, uh, on top of the applications we've already made this morning, I want to give you four more applications. Four more applications. Number one, recall the seriousness of sin. Recall the seriousness of sin. Yes, God gave us the greatest gift he could possibly do in his son, But listen, this is the son that is given for you. This is the son that has been eternally begotten by the father. It's this Jesus, this son who is lifted up on a cross for your salvation. See the price of our sin. That it costs the father his most precious beloved son. Sometimes I fear we think of our sin as being a mistake. We, we talk about our failures, our mistakes, but, but understand this. Our sin is what necessitated this great gift being beaten, crucified, and buried. So our sin is no light matter. So serious is sin that it took the eternally begotten Son of God coming in the flesh, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, keeping God's law fully, growing up to be a man who died on the cross and rose from the dead. It took all of that so that we might be saved. So when you're tempted this week, when you're being lured away by something that promises you this is a greater gift, if you give in to this pleasure, if you will just give yourself this, just let go and and enjoy it, understand, not only are you turning your back on the greatest gift that's ever given, but, but you're not taking seriously your sin. So that's the first application. Recall the seriousness of sin. But then number two, receive the gift of Christ in the gospel. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that just payment for that sin is death. But the gospel says that Christ came, died in our place, buried our sins in the grave, that he took the justice and the judgment that our sins deserve, and he rose again on the third day. So now that by faith in him, by resting and trusting in Christ, his righteousness is credited to us, but not just his righteousness. You understand when we talk about the righteousness of God being imparted to us, that does not come apart from Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are receiving Christ. And what comes with him is his righteousness, his goodness, the fullness of God, the deity that pleased to dwell, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. All of those things are in Christ. 
We get Christ. So I, I love that we talk about all the things that we receive from our salvation, but understand that not only did God send Jesus to save us, God sent us Jesus to give us Jesus. Now tell me what it is that you think that God, what, what else could he give you to show you that he loves you? He sent the greatest gift, and the greatest gift was the solution to the problem for why we couldn't receive the greatest gift. So receive the gift of Christ in the gospel. When you trust Christ, when you, when you place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you're cleansed of your sins. Yes, you are declared righteous before a holy God. But all of that is in Christ. You get Christ. And so that leads to the third application. Remember God's love for you. Remember God's love for you. The fact that Jesus did all of this and that God sent his son is a reminder of God's love. What does Romans 8.32 say? Paul says that God did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Can we, can we have a moment of, 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 let's just be honest about something. We've been spending the last year talking about prayer, have we not? So I, I shouldn't have to preface what I'm about to say by saying I believe we should pray and I believe we should lift up our requests. We should let our requests be made known to God. We know that, right? But understand this. Every request that we make and everything that God might give us falls woefully short and is so much less than what God has already given us in Christ. So here's what I want you to do. Stop measuring how much God loves you by how much he answers your prayer requests. Let that, that might, just let that sit for a moment. God has proven and shown how much he loves you by sending Jesus. It is a love that you will never be able to wrap your mind around. It is a love that we spend eternity probing the depths of. Remember God's love for you and let this gift be the standard, the, the, the litmus test for when you wonder, does God really love me? Does he really love me because I was praying for this and he hasn't given it? Dear Christian, what more could he possibly give to show you he loves you? So remember that God loves you and remember the love of God. But here's the fourth application. Rejoice. 
rejoice in the fullness of eternal life. What does John say? He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. One of the applications I want you to leave here understanding is that this causing of God, this, this everything that makes God God is given to Christ. And so when Christ comes to us, it is given to us as well. I'm not saying we become God. I'm not saying we become gods. But what I am saying is this. I like well, one theologian puts it. He says, God is no abstract, fixed, solitary substance, but a plentitude of life. It is God's nature to be generative and fruitful. Understand this. If God has eternally begotten the Son, if the Father has eternally begotten Son, that means it's in His very nature to be generative, to be generous, to be giving, to be fruitful. The divine nature is capable of expansion, of unfolding, of communication. And so those who deny this productivity, we, we fail to take seriously the fact that God is an infinite fullness of blessed life. And he communicates to that son, and it's ours in Christ. So when we talk about eternal life, understand eternal life is not just you don't die or that you just get old forever. When we talk about life, John is talking about fullness. He's talking about abundance. He's talking about receiving something from God that out of his nature overflows and and he gives all the blessedness of God, all the goodness of God, all the divinity of God. All of that is also in Christ. And it is this Christ that you receive when you rest and believe the gospel. Think about that. The generative, generous, communicating, full blessedness and goodness of God is shared by the Father in generating and and causing Christ the Son And it's this son who is the fullness of God. What does Paul say? It it pleased God that that all his fullness would dwell in Christ. And then there you are. In your sin. In your hatred. In your lack of abundance. Your lack of fullness. Your lack of life. And God loves you so much to say here. Here. Here, dear Christian, rejoice in the fullness of eternal life. Do we see now that God gave us the greatest gift when he gave us his son? Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He is the only begotten son of God. And so at this time of year, let's remember God's kindness the grace and the love that he has shown for us. 
And, and just to give you a little bit of a teaser, we haven't even exhausted all of the, the implications of this. You've, we've barely scratched the surface of God's giving love. Think about Romans 5, 5. It says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we've been talking about God's love to us manifested in the Son. We haven't even touched God's love manifested to us in the Spirit. So today, let's learn and be comforted by the fact that God gave you the greatest gift when he gave you his Son. So receive that gift today. Believe it. Maybe you need to believe it again. Maybe you need to be reminded, yes, God, you have so abundantly blessed me in giving me Christ. But maybe for the first time, you need to trust Christ. If that's today, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of prayer. Feel free to come. And if you have questions, or if you'd like to know how you can begin a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, I would love Absolutely love to be able to help you with that. But however the Lord leads, this is a time for you to respond. Maybe this is a time for you to simply acknowledge and receive. That's what gifts are for. That's what you do with them, right? You receive them. So maybe in this time of response, you simply acknowledge, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for giving yourself. Thank you for revealing the Father. And Father, thank you for giving the greatest gift in your son. However the Lord leads, you respond. Take as long as you need. I'll be down here at the front, happy to pray with you for anything. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you, God, for the greatest gift. God, we celebrate, we give gifts this time of year, but they all pale in comparison to that which was given to us in Jesus. Father, thank you for loving us. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for coming. Lord, sometimes in our life, we've, we've been given a gift that almost left us speechless. How much more should we not be in total awe that Christ was given for us? Lord, help, help us to use that as the standard for your love. Help us to see just how Christ is our hope, our joy, our peace. Holy Spirit, however it is you're moving in the hearts of your people, Lord, may we be quick to hear, quick to obey, out of love and gratitude for what's been given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.